Hey, you're checking out this year's most downloaded episode with Matt Spatel, one of the co-founders of Copilot. I really loved this episode. In hindsight, it's no surprise to see why this episode did so well and was this year's most downloaded episode. Matt is so authentic in telling his startup story. And hey, if you've made it this far, I want to tell you thank you for listening to the Good Advice podcast in 2021. And man, there are some amazing guests coming for 2022. Hey, we'll talk more about it as we get into next year. Enjoy this episode with Matt, and thank you for supporting the Good Advice podcast. See ya. Hey, are you ready to grow your business? You have checked out the number one resource for business leaders, entrepreneurs, startup founders, and managers. And we're going to teach you how to grow and scale your business with real actionable steps. There's no fluff in this podcast. It's just good advice. Check out this episode. If you're a first-time listener, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. And if you enjoy this episode, leave us a five-star review. Today's guest is Matt Spatel, who's the co-founder of Delta Trainer. I love Delta Trainer because it's actually one of the most incredible ways to get in shape without even having to leave your home. It's a one-on-one training app, and you don't need any kind of equipment. You don't need a dumbbell. You don't need a gym. You'll work with your trainer to get into shape and ultimately have the lifestyle health that you want. Check out this episode. I love Matt's perspective on entrepreneurship, on startup culture, but more importantly, why Delta Trainer is an incredible option for people wanting to exercise and get in better shape. Enjoy this episode. Here comes your good advice. Hey, thanks for checking out another episode of the Good Advice Podcast. You know I love bringing you an honest perspective on the startup world. I'm sitting down with Matt Spatel. He's talking about Delta Trainer. It's an awesome app that you need to be checking out to do your one-on-one remote training. It's especially important in today's COVID life. You don't have to worry about going out to the gym. You can do all of your exercising and get fit and in shape at home. This app is super cool. This business is super cool. We're going to be talking a little bit about it today, as well as Matt and his company's startup journey. Matt, I am honored to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Blake. It is awesome to be here and super excited to uh, nerd out about fitness. <laughs> now, we, we got to talk a little bit about the timing of all this. Uh, you know, I, and, and obviously, COVID's been hard on everybody. It's been this horrible, awful pandemic. But at the same token, there's a little bit of a silver lining of, hey, how do I work out at home? Oh, hey, here's this app that's around. It's it's interesting how, I mean, obviously you didn't orchestrate the pandemic, but it's interesting how timing sometimes can play to our favor a little bit. Oh, no, for sure. I mean, you know, a lot of my mentors, I mean, through Carnegie Mellon and everything would always say part of entrepreneurship is, is being good at, you know, business and product. And part of it is just about being at the right place at the right time. Right. And I, I will not deny that, you know, COVID has been an accelerant uh, to our business growth. Um, but, you know, as you said, like we built this business, uh, I mean, we've been building this business for almost three years now. So we we came up with this concept and launched it into a market before uh, coronavirus even existed. And, you know, we were we were gym goers. This was a product for gym goers. And that product has you know evolved to suit the needs of at home workouts. But I mean, yeah, I won't deny it. Like it's been an accelerant. 
But, you know, I will, I, I do hope that, you know, when the world does open up again, that people realize that it's not just for at-home workouts. You know, you can take your trainer to the gym, just like, you know, we first envisioned when we uh, invented the thing. Well, so let's, let's start there. Talk to me a little bit about uh, a little bit of the startup journey, how you came up with the idea. Um, I know you're one of the co-founders of the product. Uh, give us a little bit of the scoop of how this thing came together. Sure. So I guess, you know, uh, first is some context of, of myself. You know, I mean, I've been a huge nerd my whole life, you know, first I'll, I'll admit that. Um, and so when I was a senior in high school, I was doing some, you know, AP oh, chemistry projects. Is this, is this, is this like real nerd or cause some people will be like, Oh, I'm a nerd. I like Marvel. And you're like, okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, okay. Every, so everyone I mean, likes Marvel. I mean, <laughs> here I'll paint, I'll paint the, I'll paint okay. the full picture. So pre pre fitness, pre startup, Matt would, would come home from school and he would open up a container of like six whoopie pies, you know, crack open a soda and open up like the Korean Starcraft servers to start oh like, gosh. you know, working up the, the ladder from, you know, diamond to master's league. Um, you know, I, I played in guitar hero tournaments, you know, I built my own video games from scratch. Right, like, so, so, so I, like, I'd like to think I'm a, I'm a real nerd. You, you know? missed your I, I want that title. Yeah. I mean, let's think about this. The <laughs> esports world has like totally exploded. <laughs> that, that could have been you. You missed your chance. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I was that good at pressing <laughs> buttons. I, I mean, I was pretty freaking good, but like, I don't think I was that good. Yeah, yeah. So what was, what was the soda of choice? Um, the soda of, well, I don't know. I got into energy drinks, which is like a, a, a dangerous uh, oh place gosh. to be. Right. So, you know, your body I mean, hated so, you when you were younger. <laughs> still hates me. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, my, my, uh, poison of choice is definitely monster energy. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah, I love it. I, cool. I apologize to every fitness person out there listening to this and ruining our brand, but <laughs> oh, no. yeah, we're gonna have to scrub this episode. We'll just bleep it out. Yep. Yeah. All right. So, exactly. so you were, um, a bit of a gamer, a bit of a nerd. Uh, and I inter- I interrupted your story, so I didn't right, right. continue so, what you picked up on. So yeah, uh, re- rewinding back to you know, so I was this this gamer nerd guy, and I guess a good place to start would be I was at this you know summer camp for nerds doing academic work, and this uh, very athletic, muscular guy walks into the room, and everyone kind of stares at him and says like, "Why the hell is this guy here? Like this is a nerd camp, right?" Um, turns out that guy's name was uh, Gabe Madonna. And he would eventually become my co-founder in this business. But before that happened, we actually became very, very close friends. And this is the guy who brought me, you know, away from my computer and brought me into the gym and basically kicked my ass and everything and sort of opened my eyes to like, I thought I was you know, good at things, right? You know, like I'm this like you know, high achiever guy, competitive. And then this guy just comes along, completely shows me that there's this whole world of, you know, like self-care and uh, fitness performance that I was totally an alien to, right? And so... I really, you know, took to it and I went to the gym with him and he would train me and I, I fell in love with it. You know, I fell in love with strength training in particular it was my first sort of, you know, big fitness obsession. And so from that point on, Gabe and I stayed super close and had this sort of intertwined fitness journey. So, so, so what did parallel, to, or, go ahead. What, yeah. what did you, what did you love about the gym? What was it that, cause, cause I, I'm just curious because people yeah. who, you know, every new year's, every January, it's like, <clears throat> excuse me. It's like, this is the year. And you know, yeah, or I'm speaking right. to myself, I go, I go one time and I was like, okay, that was good for this year. Uh, you know, I'll see you next year, you know? And so what, yeah. what was it that, was it the competitive nature of it? Was it like, what was it that was like, okay, yeah, I want to, I want to do this again. Yeah. I think definitely thinking back, it was <clears throat> what really got me through that initial sort of hump 
that most people don't get over was the fact that I was doing it with one of my best friends and that I was competing with my best friends. Because for me in particular, competition is one of the strongest motivators. Um, and so being able to go and get my ass kicked every single day by Gabe uh, and then, you know, just, you know, thinking like, all right, what's the plan? How am I going to get better? How am I going to get stronger? You know, how am I going to excuse me, how am I going to look better? Right. And just coming back to the gym every day with those goals in mind is what, you know, that vision to be better someday than Gabe, right. Which probably still hasn't happened, um, is, uh, is what, you know, drove me to the gym. And eventually, you know, as, a, as one does, you know, those extrinsic motivators eventually became intrinsic as I sort of, instead of, you know, being in love with competition, I became in love with just, you know, working out and the endorphins and feeling good and getting stronger. And like, it became internal, right? And that's when it becomes a lifelong habit instead of just a quick little thing that you try, right? Well, so you were at this camp and it was, I, I don't know why I keep thinking of like heavyweights with like Tony Perkis, <laughs> you know, uh, you ever seen this movie with, uh, oh man, what's his name? Uh, oh, he's the guy from Meet the Parents. I can't think of his actor's name. But he's playing, you know, the right. fit guy. I guess that was gay, but I guess your age, though. <laughs> um, so you fell in love with exercise and getting fit. And uh, there's still this gap, though, between, you know, right. developing this passion and then coming up with Delta Trainer. So how, give, me, right. give me the scoop on how it transitioned from there. Yeah. So, you know, kind of in parallel to, to me becoming, you know, a gym, a gym buff was also this development in my life where I was getting very, very into entrepreneurship and sort of discovering, you know, the classic question of like, what do you want to do with your life, right? You know, like I, from a very early age, had been on a pretty strong track to just go be like an engineer of some kind, whether it be, you know, robotics or software systems. Like I just wanted to be an engineer. Like that's what I always found the most interesting. Um, but sort of, you know, as soon as my senior year of high school, through my time at Carnegie Mellon, I was always building these little like student startups, I called them. It was like, I would have some idea for something that I wanted to solve in my life. And I would just kind of, you know, hack it together, build it and kind of throw it out there, you know, do some business competitions, right? You know, we've all, we've all seen those little ideas. Um, and so I had gone through this process a few times of like idea, you know, build it, throw it out there, you like learn why people didn't want that idea, right? And sort of like this, this classic iterative process of startups, I was already pretty familiar with. And then fast forward to, it was between my junior and senior year at Carnegie Mellon, Gabe and I were working a robotics internship together. And just one day on my drive to work, this new, another idea, just like all the other ones had popped into my head of, hey, you know, we have all this, these wearables and amazing technology for tracking cardio and running and you know, steps and heart rate and all that. But like, nothing's tracking our strength training workouts, right? Like nothing can track my reps, track my form, anything like that. So I was like, I just went up to Gabe and I was like, Hey, I mean, obviously at the time he was studying machine learning at MIT. So he was like a perfect candidate to, for, for nerding out about this stuff. And I said, Hey, like, can we use wearables and the data from them to track strength training? Um, and like, you know, his eyes just lit up and we basically left work early that day and, you know, basically never came back um, because we just were working, you know, constantly the rest of that summer on building some prototypes for what this idea would look like. And very quickly, we just got that sense of like, this is something, this is something we want to spend a really long time working on. This is way cooler than any project or any internship we'd ever had. Like, let's make this real. And so it really just kind of explosively kicked off from, from that summer. Now you guys aren't, you aren't the first ones to come up with this idea of like sort of this personalized training. Cause, cause I, I know a lot of people, they don't go to the gym because they just don't know what to do. And there's sort of like this right. also, um, 
unspoken, maybe shame is too strong of a word, but like, you know, you get on a piece of equipment and it's like, you're like looking around, you're like, am I even using this thing the right way? Or yeah. I mean, I've even seen, I've seen funny videos of like people who are trying to work out and they're like filming themselves and they're using the machine totally wrong. <laughs> and so yep. we, always, we always kind of have this thought process. And so you guys aren't the first ones to come up with this idea of really solving um, the shame game, but, but empowering people to personalize their workout. Was it, was it wearables that you feel like helped you guys differentiate? Cause I was looking at your website and you guys even have this setup fee where you actually send an Apple watch to, to your customers, which I thought that's really yep. interesting. Uh, cause actually my first, uh, when I was first looking at your website, I was like, okay, yeah, it's, it's another, uh, personalized training program. But then I saw the Apple watch and I was like, okay, that's different. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. That's something that I haven't thought of before. Was, was that your differentiator? Did that, or, or, or tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, I would definitely say that that's correct. And, you know, you'll notice that in this story, I haven't actually mentioned training at all because the initial idea of the, the product was literally just used using wearables like Apple watches to collect all this data. So, you know, as I said, we were huge data nerds. We weren't really trainers or anything like that. Like when we started out, like we really just wanted to collect a bunch of nerdy data and look at it and use it to make our plans better. Right. At that point, it wasn't about solving the shame game. It was about hmm. optimizing, right. And collecting data. Right. Um, and so the entire first like idea was just all of these technologies we had built to take the motion data off of wearables like the Apple Watch and spit out things like, you know, how is your pacing? How is your form? Like how long were your sets, et cetera. Um, and then it was about a year after the initial sort of inception of the idea that we realized like, all right, well, most people don't really get a ton of value out of just looking at some numbers from their sets. Right. Like just like, you know, Fitbit has kind of lost the step counting appeal. Right. Like people don't just want numbers. They want insights. They want guidance. You know, like you said, they want to solve the shame game. They want to solve the how do I get started game. Right. And so that's when it just sort of lit up and we're like, all right, well, you know, we have all this data. Who can use this data better than anyone else in the world? Certified experts. Right. So like what if we take in a real personal trainer and then give them this data from the watch and say, like, train this person remotely. And we saw this amazing thing happen where the types of interactions that you would only see if a trainer was like sitting right next to you, spotting you in the gym saying like, oh, yeah, like, you know, don't bring your arm so low. Those kinds of interactions and more was happening remotely. And because of that, we could do it for, you know, a hundredth or a tenth, you know, of, of the price, depending on your gym, right? And so it just was like, all right, now we can give a person, a real personal trainer, one-on-one -on -one personal trainer to anybody, right? And we were like, this is, this is something, right? There's some real, real value there. And immediately that's when I would say that was the critical pivot that sort of sent our business on an upward trajectory long before COVID was, hey, I can get a trainer for, you know, $70 a month right? Like that is insane. Like it would be $70 a half hour session before. Right. So that, that was a game changer. Yeah. I, and I, to speak to that, I actually, I had a personal trainer, uh, several years ago before I embraced the dad bod and it was like maybe <laughs> 500 or $600 a month. So, I mean, you're, you're right. right. You're totally on the, on the point talking about a 10th of the price. Uh, I'm also just fast. I don't have an Apple watch. So I don't, you know, not to be like the idiot in the room, but I didn't realize how <laughs> versatile that this technology was. I mean, you're talking about like being able to hand data off to someone and for them to be able to have these kinds of insights like, oh, you know, your, your form's off. I didn't realize an Apple Watch tracked that much information. I, I guess I would have assumed like you're breathing too fast. I don't know. I mean, it's pretty cool to think about. <laughs> yeah. So, 
so like, you know, I mean, don't give Apple too much credit is what I would say. You know, we, <laughs> we, uh, we pull, we pull a bunch of raw information off those watches, you know, to name them. It's like acceleration, gyroscope readings, magnetometer readings, like, you know, all these basic sensors that pretty much every wearable has. Right. But we're one of the first companies in the world that has taken that information. And then in our own systems, we, we turn acceleration graphs into, you know, oh, it looks like, you know, you're leaning forward a little bit too much there. Oh, it looks like, you know, you're bending your elbows where you shouldn't be. Right. And so we're able to extract these, these uh, pieces of advice and pieces of, you know, form mistakes from this data where nobody else has. So the Apple watch itself is just spitting out raw data that's useless, but because of the technology we've built, we can actually turn that into insights for the trainers. And so that's why you haven't heard about it before, right? It's because, you know, it's really only in the hands of our algorithms that we've built that it's actually useful. Now, did you need like a, a programming background for this? I mean, is this, is this like built from scratch <laughs> oh, yeah. type of, okay. Yeah. So I, I can't, I can't sit here and, and take credit for, you know, 99% of that system. That was all Gabe. You know, as I mentioned, Gabe was, you know, super, super smart when I first met him, but at MIT, he really dived into signal processing and machine learning. Um, and obviously he was a huge fitness nerd as well. And so it was like this match made in heaven where I, I came to Gabe and I said like, Hey, you know, I can build this app and this system that can get you this raw data. Can you take this raw data and generate meaningful insights? And, you know, it took him years basically to build algorithms that actually worked reliably. But, you know, today I can proudly say that, you know, on hundreds of exercises, we can detect sets, grade pacing, analyze form. Like it's taken time to build, but yeah, it's been built from the ground up, mostly by the uh, super smart guy in the other room. <laughs> Well, it's it's cool reading about y'all's success, and uh, your COO had sent me some statistics on how you guys have just. You mentioned even yourself, just this critical growth that you've been on lately. Talk to me a little bit about. So you're in the startup world. You guys are. Um, I, I work in the startup world. You're one of the rare stories of a startup that is. Um, frankly, doing business the right way. And that's not a broad brush across startups. It's just that many startups, what people often are trying to do, this is not uncommon in the entrepreneurship world, is they're trying to sell an idea that really hasn't gone anywhere yet. And so like you've probably been to any number of events where someone says, hey, our startup's really awesome. It's the next Amazon. It's the next Facebook. It's or the really cliche one. It's the next Uber. Or I had someone sit down with me and he said, hey, I have this product. Um, I need to find a quarter of a million in funding. How do I find that? And I said, well, well, let me see the products. Well, I don't have it yet. Okay. Well, how many... Right. So you don't have any customers then? No, I don't have any customers. Okay, well, who's going to... But so, but we have sort of like this illustration in our mind of this very sexy entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial journey. And what you just talked about was years of programming, hard work, um, really turning this idea over and it also lining up with good timing or good technology that's available. What, what do you think is going on in the startup world that is keeping people from... Uh, I don't know if it's having an honest perspective, but at least, um, I guess, what's disrupting people from moving forward momentum-wise with their startup? Right. I mean, I think a lot of it is how or what the media likes to write about in startups, right? You know, like as a startup trying to get media coverage, you know, what do they want to write about? They want to write about my funding round, right? They don't want to write about how I spent two years building a revolutionary product yawn, right? Like I want to put a big number with a million dollars symbol, right? In it, in my headline. Right. And so, 
And obviously this problem is exacerbated by, especially in the West Coast startup culture, the availability of funding is higher than it's ever been before, especially at the earliest stages, right? And so, you know, entrepreneurs who have been successful before, who have strong networks, you know, it is not at all crazy to go and raise, you know, a few million dollars, $5 million, $10 million, right? You know, name a number before you have anything. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've, I, I know people who have done that. Right. So in, in our case, you know, we didn't have that luxury. You know, we had strong networks through Carnegie Mellon and MIT, but, you know, we were literally 21 and 22 year old kids when we started this idea, right, and, and came up with this idea. And so you could imagine me going up to some VC and saying, hey, you know, I have an idea, like, can I have a million dollars? And they'd be like, no, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, it, it, that just doesn't happen. But I get what you're saying. It's like, that's what people think will happen. And I have people come up to me all right. the time and their, their question isn't, Matt, how do I build a product that people want? Their question is, Matt, how do I raise a million dollars, right? Um, and my answer is almost always like, if you have a product that people want, then fundraising is easy, right? I mean, I don't want to say easy. It's still, it's still amazingly difficult, but it's easier than it is without a product, like you're saying, right? And in today's world, especially as you know, technical founders, people can build so, so, so much more than they think they can without getting money. Um, you know, to put to put actual you know, evidence behind my words here, myself and Gabe. We are still the core engineering team of this entire company. You know, we have thousands and thousands of customers and Gabe and I are still building this product because we want to be so connected to what it needs to be, what the feature set needs to be. And we can build it pretty freaking well, as we've shown in the last, you know, two years. Right. And so just by staying so close to the product, staying so lean and just saying like, no, like we can build that, right? Like, why would I need to hire or you know, hire 10 engineers to build this um, has really helped sort of shape our trajectory to be super lean and reach, you know, amounts of success and growth that startups normally, you know, stages past us, right, would achieve, right? And it's just because we pushed ourselves to say like, no, we can build this, we can do this, right? This core team can do this. We don't need to hire 10 engineers to build a proof of concept, right? Well, I don't know if you've read The Lean Startup by uh, yep. <laughs> Eric Rise uh, or Eric Rees, however people like to say it. Um, it's an interesting concept because when we talk about growing your startup, you know, cash flow is so um, vital and it's something that a lot of people don't have. And especially when we talk about bootstrapping your business, uh, there's a lot of stress associated with that. Something that I like that you mentioned though is, and this has actually been written about many times in Silicon Valley, is this sort of... Um, uh, man, I don't know how to say it without sounding inappropriate. Frankly, startup dick measuring. It's like, you know, we're going to spend all this money fast tracking this part of our business, this part of the app, what have you. And it feels like there's this sort of um, secret sauce. I don't know how secret it is, but businesses like yours that realize, hey, we're, we're not out here to so much prove ourselves or make ourselves look bigger than we are. We're, we're going to make this thing happen and we're going to do it in a cash functional way. Uh, which I appreciate. I appreciate that about you guys. Yeah, so. I'd say that's definitely, definitely pretty, pretty true. In our case, you know, we 
it's not that we haven't raised any money. You know, our first money was from, you know, dinky little business competitions that we went to and, you know, got, got 10 K here and 10 K here, which is you know, just enough to, you know, bring me and Gabe out to, you know, that accelerator thing we did, or, you know, to buy enough ramen and, you know, protein bars to get us through the next month. Right. Um, more monster. And, so, <laughs> and more monster for me. Right. You're like, don't like Gabe hear that. Um, so, you know, I think we definitely stayed like super, super, lean. And, you know, even to this day, we're still having that conversation of, you know, you know, yes, we could now probably go raise a ton of money uh, and just like, you know, grow super fast. Right. But it's like, wait, but we've already grown super fast. We're continuing to grow super fast. Like we don't need that much. Right. You know, we, you know, I look at competitors and comparables in the industry all the time who raised $10 million seed, 30 million dollar series a you know 50 million dollar series b right and then you look at like you know their traction and it's lower than ours and i'm like okay clearly money does you know money does not solve problems you know money lets you go faster if you've already figured it out right um and so but, you know but, we're we we raise the money we need but you know we don't we haven't excessively done so just to you know, expand the team right how, how do you solve that friction though with funders you know with vcs what have you who are they're they're investing and they want to see that explosive exponential scaling happen and and one of the things we know this is not just in the startup world but just businesses in general who scale too quickly who don't build their foundation whether that's hiring too fast and developing this churn of talent that's very expensive how do you how do you solve the friction of I'm going to grow my business at the pace that I can still keep my fingers on it, but at the same time have people who are interested funders who basically want to return on their investment? Right. I mean, that's a really good question. And I think it's one of the fundamental challenges of entrepreneurship is we got to go really, really, really fast. But if you go too fast, you're gonna like fly into a wall, right? Um, and so, you know, what you know, I wouldn't think of it from the perspective of we've made this decision to not grow fast, right? You know, our decision is we're, we have a very, very specific plan of how we're going to grow, you know, 20 to 50% month over month for the next year. And then, you know, 15 to 25% for the next year after that, right? And it's like, that's pretty freaking good growth. That's still way better than 99% of startups, right? I'm just in a very fortunate position that, you know, maybe I only need a million dollars to do that, right? You know, versus some startup might think they need 50 million to do that, right? Um, because the amazing thing that happens, you know, as we've seen with many, many startups is if you have a product that people actually want, and it's 10 times cheaper and 10 times better than what's out there in the industry, it's pretty cheap to grow, you know, like to at least acquire users because it's an amazing product that people want, right? You know, I don't have to throw away $50 million on marketing, you know, when I can acquire users as cheaply as we can, you know, obviously where you start getting in the, the fixed costs is, you know, got to expand your engineering team, your product team, your leadership team, you know, our, in our case, trainer leadership team, right? Trainer directors, trainer VP of training, all of these things. Yes, we'll have to hire out. And yes, we're going to have to raise money. And so I, I, it's not a question of we've decided not to grow and not raise. You know, we are raising money and we are growing very, very fast. It's just like in a tempered man in, manner, right? Like you said, a lot of entrepreneurs I talk to take pride in how much they raised, which to me makes no sense. I take pride in how many, you know, emails I get every day from customers saying, wow, I was able to, you know, go to my daughter's karate class for the first time in 10 
years, you changed my life, right? And it's like, that's pretty freaking cool. Like, I don't think many entrepreneurs can say that, right? They can say, I raised $10 million series A at a blah, 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 valuation, post money, blah, blah, blah. Wow. I really got this awesome term sheet. Let me tell you about it. It's like, all right. In the time that they've talked about that, I've changed five more people's lives. Right. And so it's just, it's all about, you know, priorities and sort of that culture, I think is very strong at Delta Trainer. It's like, we're not here to like, you know, make a, make a big fuss about the money or the team or the size or the growth or anything. It's like, we're here to change lives. And, you know, we've kept that at our core and our trainers keep that at the core every single day. Something I like about the, um, the podcast is having guests like you who come on and kind of bring us back to the, the central foundation of what it's about. And ultimately, hopefully we're all in business to help people. You know, I mean, it's, it's in whatever way that looks like, and we're trying to solve a problem that someone has and, you know, maybe it may not be life shattering or maybe it is, but I like how you're, you're pointing to the simple fact that one of the ways a startup can be successful is this passionate drive to actually creating a product that helps people. And it, and it, it seems kind of, it almost seems kind of obvious, like, well, yeah, why wouldn't you? But yet uh, I can think of plenty of people I've talked to. You can probably think of uh, plenty in your own circle where across so much dialogue, we really do get lost on the main central premise of our business. Uh, and again, like you mentioned in the startup world, it is a lot about funding and fundraising and investors uh, to a detriment sometimes of, um, yeah, I haven't actually made anything that people want. <laughs> so right. I appreciate yeah. that perspective for sure. And I, and I mean, I normally, this comes up so much when I'm talking to like, you know, entrepreneurs who are like just coming out of school or just coming out of an MBA is like, you know, it's, it's both things are important, right? Fundraising valuations, you know, all that stuff. Growth is super important, right? Product is super important. It's really, you know, I normally just describe it as it's about which one is leading your thoughts, right? Which one is in the front of your head and which one's in the back, right? It's like, like you know, if you're, if you're leading your thoughts with fundraising, right. And you're leading your thoughts with valuations and VC relationships and headlines, then you're going to run your business and run your culture in a very you know, specific way. Um, and then, you know, spoiler alert, you're going to struggle to build something that people actually want and that will last in the long term, right? If you lead with building something that people want, like you said, that helps people in a genuine way, that delivers that 10 times value than anything else in the market, then, you know, big surprise, all the other stuff tends to just kind of fall into place, right? You know, it's like, wow, I got a good valuation on my company that has thousands of users who recommend my product every day, right? Like big surprise, right? Versus, you know, I got an awesome big valuation, right? Now I have to build a product. And it's like so many people fail on the product stage. Like, you know, it makes so much more sense to lead with building the product and then figure out how to scale it up. And that tends to, to fall into place a lot better. Or, or even worse, I talked to one startup founder who, I mean, he had blown through probably 40 or $50,000 of startup cash. And uh, I was like, so what are you going to do? Because he had gotten nowhere. And he said, well, what do I care? It's not my money. And I was like, oh my gosh, what a terrible perspective. Uh, so it's, it's interesting, the breadth of people who, not just in the startup world, but who get into business in general. Something else I want to ask you, you know, obviously you've, you've had sort of like these um, entrepreneurial curiosities. I wonder if, you know, these ideas that you've come up with, what's the worst idea that you came up with for a, bi a business venture? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, there's so many, like, I, I guess one, one that jumps out as being a cool idea, but a terrible business 
is, you know, I, in, I come up with this idea of building these little pumping systems that would help uh, chemistry labs and chemistry teachers make like dilutions and titrations faster, right? And we called this thing ChemiCube. Um, and we thought it was going to be great because we made it, it was like only $400 or something like that. And we were going to sell it to all these labs and high schools and stuff. And, you know, turns out like cool idea, you know, it worked, did the, did, the, did, the, did the dilutions, did the titrations, right? But at the end of the day, it's like, that was something thing that not a single, you know, lab or single teacher wanted, right? And if a lab did want that, they already had the $10,000 measurement thing. And I would say like, you know, I could probably list off five more ideas that I've had in that same bucket of, I had saw some like very, you know, problem that was, that was right in front of me that I had experienced in like, in that case, in a chemistry lab, right? And I was like, I'm going to solve this, right? And then you build the solution and you realize that, yes, it solves it in that specific case for you in this specific time, but it really just does not apply to a general market of people. And that has been the, that's the fundamental problem that most startup founders hit a wall with, right? It's like they build something and then they throw it out there and spoiler alert, almost nobody wants it when you throw that first thing out there, right? And a lot of founders just say, huh, okay, you know, next, right? And I did that several times, right? But then with the idea of, of Delta Band at the beginning is what we called it, eventually Delta Trainer, um, you know, when we threw out that first idea of the, here's a wearable we're going to build, it's going to track your reps and blah, 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 blah. Like nobody really wanted it. Right. But instead of saying like, okay, you know, move on to the next idea. We said, no, no, no. Like there, there's elements here that are good and there's elements that are bad. Let's continue to iterate. Right. And, you know, you talked about like the lean startup methodology, like that is core, right. It's like build, measure, learn. And we would just do that over and over and over again. I mean, it's, it sounds silly to like, say like it's in a lecture now, but looking back, that's what we did. Like we, we would throw something out there. Nobody would use it. You know, we, we ask our friends and our family and a few random people like, why, you know, what do you want to see where's the value and eventually we did stumble upon after probably a dozen iterations onto something that people actually wanted so you know i i would say like you know i definitely agree with the whole mentality of like ideas are pretty cheap and you know bad ideas are honestly probably just as valid as amazing ideas right off the bat because no matter what you're going to have to iterate it like dozens of times before you actually get to you know the mythical product market fit that you know we all hear so much about well, I have, I have two questions, two follow-up questions, and uh, I'll ask them both and you can pick which one you want to answer. The first sure. one is, how do you get real-time customer feedback to help guide that iteration process? Because uh, that's a big problem that I think a lot of people have is their perception of what the product is versus what customers think are very different, right? Right. So how do you get customer feedback in real-time? The second one that I'm curious about is... How did you stay hungry and focused and consistently showing up every day? Because that iterative process you're talking about, this doesn't happen overnight. I mean, this is weeks, months, sometimes years in the years. making. And so how do you stay positive and full of belief in what you're doing two years down the road compared to the day you started? Um, whichever question you want to answer. Uh, I mean, those are both. I'll, I'll, those are both really good. I'll, I'll quickly answer the the more logistical one of like how do you get feedback, um, and then I will I will talk about how you stay motivated because that's super important as well. So, for feedback, it depends on sort of what stage you are and what your product is. Obviously, for us, you know, at the earliest stages, it was as simple as 
bringing our earliest prototypes or fake prototypes. You know, we made several fake versions of our app that we would like manually control from behind a curtain. You know, one of my professors would always call that the Wizard of Oz demo, right? Um, and so you would bring that in and you would you'd show them. And if you would do the Wizard of Oz demo and someone would be like, uh, that's cool, you know, whatever. If you but and then if you did the Wizard of Oz demo and someone said, Holy crap, like this is amazing. Like, all right. Where, where do I put in my credit card? Right. You know, like that's like check. All right. You know, that's the kind of feedback you want. And the only other thing I'll add for feedback is it's so easy to get biased answers from people when you're in those earliest stages of like ideation, right? Like the classic is you go up to someone, you, you pitch your whole idea. You're so passionate. You're so excited. And you're like, what do you think, man? Is it going to work? Right. It's like, well, it would take a total jerk to say no, like, you know, <laughs> go home kid. Right. Of course that person's going to say like, like that idea is awesome. Like, you know, you go do it. You know, I'm so proud of you, you know, like, yeah. yeah and you're yeah. like, and then you'll go home to your co-founder and be like, this is it, man. This is it. They love it. Like we're going to be millionaires. Right. Um, I think almost every entrepreneur has experienced that. So what I always say is, you know, money is the ultimate like currency of validity when it comes to business ideas. Right. And so whether like, you don't have to actually take someone's money, but you need to be convinced that someone is this close to handing over, you know, $5, $10, whatever it may be for your initial product, like in that moment, otherwise they don't like it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because if it, if, if, if the concept is enough to, you know, a pre-order or uh, here, you know, we'll give you a 50% discount and we'll get it to you next week or whatever you need to say, just to, you know, get past the fact that it doesn't exist yet to try to see if someone would actually give you that dollar, that is the ultimate test. So I'll say like, you know, that, that's how we test it. And that, it changed forms over time, how we did that. But at the core, it was always like, would you pay for this? Right? Yeah. I love everything I, else. Is, everything else is noise. I, I love that. And I, I, I think ultimately people do, they pay for what they actually value. Uh, and I loved your, your bias, your comment on bias. Uh, there's a great book called passing the mom test. Uh, and it's basically, if you want to grow your startup, stop asking your mom what she thinks about your right. idea. <laughs> so no, right, that's, you, that's totally valid. Hit me with that second question. How do you stay consistent yeah, and sure. motivated and all that stuff? Yeah, I mean, obviously a lot goes into this, right? You know, life, life is complex and it really depends on sort of where you are in your life, the risks you're sort of willing to take, right? And so, you know, in my own experience, I was very, very fortunate that, you know, I came out of, I came out of school with, you know, little to, to no debt. Um, and I was ready to sort of like, you know, make the absolute minimum amount of money possible to just scrape by and sort of like, you know, make it work. And so financially I had time, which was valuable. And then, but, you know, obviously just having enough money in the bank isn't enough to have you show up every day. That's just a requirement, right. To, you know, be able to buy the ramen and pay for your rent. Um, And so what really, you know, kept me going was I would say two things. One of them was like, like the core of the idea we were working on was such a big passion of mine that I knew that I would be more excited to work on that idea, regardless of its level of success, than working for some random project at a bigger company 10 out of 10 times. So like, I would rather work on rep counting and fitness apps and that kind of stuff than working on some other thing I had done for an internship, for example. Like, it was just always like, that was more rewarding and fun. So that was important. Like, I want to have fun, right? I want to do something that's, 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 that's fun. And then the second big thing was team. So obviously I was extremely lucky to have one of my best friends from childhood be my co-founder and to have him there every single step of the way, it makes it so much harder to give up, right? If it's just you and you go and you build that version, you go out and nobody likes it. It's just so easy to be like, 
man, like maybe this isn't it. Like maybe this isn't for me. Like maybe, you know, I, you know, and I would tell myself this sometimes with previous ideas, like maybe I should just go get that PM job at Google, right? Like that's what everyone else from Carnegie Mellon's doing, right? Um, but no, like having Gabe there and having him be just as passionate about the idea at its core as I was, we just sort of knew to each other. It's like, we can't give up on this, right? Like this almost in, you know, in a very sort of like cliche was like, it was clear that this is what we're meant to spend our lives building, right? It's like, this is just perfect for us, you know, fitness, technology, machine learning, AI, like changing these lives, like we couldn't imagine doing anything else. So we sort of promised to each other, like we knew we had to make it work for those reasons, because it's the only thing we could see ourselves doing. And I, and I think that's, that's true for any entrepreneurial adventure is like, if you're, if you're in it for the money, if you're in it for like these very sort of like ephemeral, like fame type reasons, like you will quit, right? Because it gets so freaking hard at those lowest points. But if you actually just can, if you can generally say, if you can raise your hand and say, I would rather make $15,000 a year and have absolutely no success for two years, than you know, make whatever 100K a year, 200K a year at XYZ company, because I really care about this idea, then you can be an entrepreneur, right? Otherwise, you're just a ticking time bomb. So that, that's my answer there. I love it, man. And that what a what a great way to sum up entrepreneurship and the the battle for growing out your vision to an actual product. Uh, Matt, we are out of time today. I want to ask you, what can people do to learn more about Delta Trainer? Or maybe if they even want to follow up with you, what's the next route for people to be able to, to learn more? Sure. So I mean for the company itself, just going to www.deltatrainer.fit. Uh, which I'm sure we can throw in the description or something, um, is the best way to learn more about the product. You know, we've currently got a 14-day risk-free trial. Um, so literally no reason not to check it out. Um, if you want to follow me in particular, I'd say I'm most active on, you know, LinkedIn. Um, so feel free to send me a connection request or follow me on LinkedIn. More than happy to connect with any, especially aspiring entrepreneurs. Love Love you know having these discussions, talking about the the peaks and the valleys, and uh, helping people through it. So don't hesitate to reach out, um, and more than happy to do what I can to help. Matt, thanks for joining the podcast today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Blake, and thank you to everyone for listening. Yeah, for those of you listening, hey, I'm going to put the website down in the episode description below. That's deltatrainer.fit. Also, you got to check out their 14 day free trial. Also, if you have an Apple Watch, they will you'll have uh, a zero dollar setup fee. Otherwise, they will send you an Apple Watch, and it's pretty cool how it works. You got to check out more, and also make sure you learn more about Matt on LinkedIn. I'll also put a link down to his bio down below. Hey, if you're a first time listener, thanks so much for checking out the podcast, and more importantly, what the heck you waiting on? Click that subscribe subscribe button so you can keep getting good advice wherever you are. And hey, don't forget, we are on Patreon. Check us out, patreon.com slash good advice, where you can get more of our premium content, as well as get your business sponsored on the podcast. Again, you can check that out, patreon.com slash good advice. For everyone who supported the podcast, thank you so much. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you later. See ya.